Hi, I'm Tom Power, and welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Hi, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for streaming or downloading, uh, and thanks for your feedback on the past few weeks of our tribute to Tony Rice. This has been really lovely, and your comments and messages and DMs have meant a lot to us. Um, if you want to get in touch and, and let us know what you've been thinking or anything that's on your mind, uh, drop us a line. Uh, we're on Instagram at Toy Heart Podcast. You can drop us a line on the Bluegrass Situation Facebook page. You can find us on the Bluegrass Situation website. There's no shortage of ways to get in touch, and we'd love to hear from you. If you missed part one and two of the tribute, you can find it in your podcast feed on Spotify or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find our interviews with folks like Del McCurry, Alice Gerard, and Jesse McReynolds. We love doing Toy Heart, and I'm so looking forward to season two once the border opens up and things get back to normal. So please hit subscribe and tell a friend who is into this music. Part three of our tribute to Tony Rice is an interesting one because as has been pointed out in all the discourse around Tony Rice, his music will live on. And it will live on through some of the musicians you'll hear today. Some knew Tony, some played with him, but every single one of them was influenced by him. Chris Thiele, Chris Critter Eldridge, Molly Tuttle, and Brian Sutton. Starting first with Chris Thiele, who, along with folks like Tony Rice, is what you might call a transformational figure in the music. There's like a before Chris Thiele and after Chris Thiele. But what I love about our chat is that he talks about being so cautious, so nervous around Tony, until one night. He'll tell you that story. Here's my conversation with Chris Thiele. So Chris, I guess to start things off, I'm just so sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for the loss of your friend. Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's for, for me, for me, you, you look, you look back at all the times that you could have more actively sought out, um, his company. You know, there, there were, there were times he was, uh, as I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people, he was, he was a hard guy to know. Um, but I had, I had opportunities. He was always so, he was super generous, um, with me, but I was still kind of scared of him a little bit, you know, always with the, ever since I was little. So I would, I would get to, I would get to see a set of his at these California bluegrass festivals that my folks would take me to maybe like the grass Valley festival. And, and, um, and maybe I'd get to play, uh, maybe like Tim O'Brien and Pete Warnick would, would come out and, and say hi after a show. And, and, and I would, I would always sort of, um, you know, a little pipsqueak there with the mandolin, like out of its case all the time, just waiting to show someone that I could play. <laughs> um, and those guys might, might get an instrument and, and, and start playing. And Tony, Tony would be around, like you'd see him, you'd see him always in the suit and, and, um, and with the good cologne and, and, uh, you sort of regally smoking a cigarette or, or whatever he was doing. And he, he might look and he might look interested. He, w- he wasn't going to take the guitar out. Um, and, and that was etched in my mind back then as these incredible sets with the Tony Rice unit and then maybe seeing him, but like, but inaccessible um, compared to some of these other, these other people. And then, um, and then come to, uh, I was a little bit later, Let's see. I I, I was older. I was, I was at the, the, I feel like maybe at the, at Pearl Fest in Wilboro, North Carolina, um, 
It was like uh, just one set, one time. All of a sudden, he's just like, "Hi, hey, Chris." I was like, "Going, I'm sorry." Ah, ah, ah. Like he did, he did he that he noticed me that he knew my name, um, and was just so genial talking to me like like I heard him talk to Bela or or Jerry with the same kind of um, like he's always about to crack a joke of some kind and 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 doesn't quite <laughs> like he's almost about to. How how old um, were you there? You and think? and from then on. I think maybe, I feel like maybe 14, 15. Um, and, um, but we hadn't, we hadn't played yet. I think it wasn't until, I'm trying to remember the first, I think the first time would have been actually on stage. I saw World a video Festival, this of morning workshops. of, I think, I mean, you were pretty young. It was you and, yeah. and Nickel Creek and Tony doing Molly and Tenbrooks. Oh. Yeah. I mean, the first couple of times, Bayless said such a, uh, a spot on, um, one of, one of Bayless tweets about Tony after, after this was, was so dead on where basically Tony just made you feel like a superhero. Whenever you play with him, it would, it, it would always be the best you could play. Why, why is that? Um, like what, what did he give that allowed for that? There's there's some sort of um, there's a way that you that you uh, you try to back someone up, and I think people f forget about this. Um, you know, especially in the especially in that um, there's 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 the competitive aspect of of improvisatory music where you're like waiting for your solo. <laughs> you know, like waiting to show people what what you can do and the best players are, are are never are never like that they're they're only he had this um sort of like terry gross like ability to just ask the perfect question just set the soloist up whoever was playing um whoever was being featured it was like tony had just set them up with the perfect question um that that he knew they could answer um, or he like he knew that they would provide. It, it, um, it's not a perfect analogy, but he he knew that the he was asking you a question that you were the perfect person to answer, and you would provide like a very a very enlightening answer. That's how it always felt. Um, that his playing underneath you, or or like a there's lots of different analogies we could use. Like it was a like a trampoline, or or or. Um, depending on what was appropriate, you just felt like like he had magically set you up for the most success. You felt bulletproof playing with that man, bulletproof. Um, and 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 to me, it's 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 actually that that rhythm playing, as as profound as uh, as every aspect of his musicianship was and is, as we when we still get to to interact with it. Um, thank God. But no one ever felt like he did rhythmically. Like no one sounds like you would never confuse someone else for Tony Rice based on their rhythm guitar playing. You might, you might, they might trick you into thinking it's him on their on the the soloing. Um, you know, playing those that you know incredible, <laughs> taking one of those uh, those licks that he would play. They're like an arrow, you know, and so you could take that arrow out of your quiver and shoot it and and hit the bullseye. But the rhythm playing was so uh 
so unique, so enigmatically him. Um, and that was the thing that would just send any piece of music he was a part of into the stratosphere, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, is that that rhythm guitar playing under his singing or under anyone else's singing or mm. or under anyone else's playing? Um, and again, it's that it's that sensitivity and it's the infinite interactivity um, of that playing that he's constantly listening um, to. It feels like a whole other. There's like another person attached to him, and that like that that his guitar and what he's playing is a whole other Tony Rice in addition to the Tony to to the Tony Rice that is him. Um, and it, it it just it's a it's. He, he would make you feel like a superhero and and you you realize listening listening after the fact um that it was owing to that again that just extraordinary sensitivity and touch on the on the instrument um and his ability to process all of the all of the music being made around him uh to understand what someone had just said to understand it very deeply and then um make a comment on it or ask a question based on that thing that they had just posited, you know, instrumentally or, or vocally. Um, just, just extraordinary. So, so when I think about something like playing Molly and Tenbrooks with, with Tony, it, it instantly goes into that feeling like this state of being, um, you, you, no, no musician who has ever played with Tony has ever felt more supported. And it's a, it's a, and free um, and a great sense of freedom. So free, so free. You could play. Yeah. It's not, it's not that you would play. It's not like he was um, like giving you a dotted line to, to trace. Um, it was, it was, uh, yeah. Again, it was just like this. I, I hear you. I hear you. And your thing is perfect for this moment. Is is kind of like what you were hearing from Tony Rice when you were playing with him. What do you hear when you hear him sing? The words, <laughs> like you actually hear every single word. Um, it's and I and and no, you no artifice, no uh, no, you hear a total lack of self consciousness when he's singing. Like no, there's no it's like buddha it's buddhist it's like there's no self he's not wrapped up in the self of singing it's he's he's just here's this song that i love and i want to share it with you here's this song that i love that's that's what i hear when i hear tony rice singing is is like this is a great song that i think you should hear and he doesn't there's no like vocal easy things he's not adorning it there's not there's not this like here I go and and um and though he had an incredible like that sound was amazing we know we know now uh how much he was straining while he was singing which is which is really um you can hear it late, late as 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 we get late like you can hear it on Tony Rice plays and sings you can hear the strain um but it's the furthest thing from your mind uh Maybe up and uh, up until whenever you start hearing that little edge come in, it just seemed it seemed like the most natural thing in the world, like like the like the rhythm guitar playing felt. You can it, it to my ear, you can hear the strain, the physical strain in the solo playing. You can hear 
the um you can hear the I'm going to say the word struggle, but I don't mean that it sounds like he's struggling. Just that it's like like it you can hear the the physical nature of how he approached the guitar. Um and and I think that's I I actually think that's part of what's so arresting about it is that is um to hear someone out on the edge of what is physically possible for a human being to do. Um you know, it's it's like the difference, maybe the difference between like a Raphael Nadal uh, and and Roger Federer, like Federer, you're struck by just how natural it all looks, how mm. like, like, is it probably it's possibly easier for Federer to hit a forehand than it is for him to sit in a chair. Um, and and Nadal gives you th- like there's the struggle, the struggle, like the physical struggle of playing tennis. And I feel like Tony Rice's solo like soloing on the guitar is like watching Nadal play tennis um as opposed to like Federer where uh where maybe that's more like of a of a like an O'Connor playing uh fiddle kind of Federer is more like an O'Connor playing fiddle sort of a feeling yeah Um, seems to be somewhat attached to him uh, an extension of himself speaking yes but but like he's singing he's singing at uh before we started hearing that the 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 wear and tear show up also struck me as just again you would to take self totally out of it and just hear the song um it's really and that's like what winemakers are trying to do this that at this point like you're just trying to taste the earth that this that this thing that these grapes come from like you're trying to taste that that place and that time and and not like what the winemaker did in the wine cellar and i think vocalists often are like um they're like really showy you know big giant california cabernets or whatever um when when what we really want is is or what i i really want is to just taste like is there limestone in that in that soil like what's going on what's the climate like there and and what what was the year like that's so much more interesting i think than than um than high alcohol and high sugar and and um and i feel like tony tony is just that like he's that burgundy approach to to winemaking like you taste you you feel like you hear the soil and the vintage of that song i wonder if you could talk um about that merle fest jam you know after um tony died you you wrote thank you for everything especially that one session after the midnight jam at merle fest forever ago i hope you don't mind if i imagine you growling picket sun every time i attempt to play one of your tunes I, i wonder if you could tell me that story yeah, man. So the Midnight Jam at Merlefest was, um, we looked forward to that every year. And you never knew, uh, the, like what, what people would actually see. So it was this, it was this very organized and often, often fairly lifeless performance, um, late Saturday at, at Merlefest. And, um, like what what actually made it out onto stage was rarely what was so amazing about it for all of us and you know I, i'm i'm i wish it could be another way but it can't it can't of necessarily course. be another way um because you just got a bunch of people back there um 
loving loving each other's company and and usually it was it was festival participants whose the, the bulk of their work was already done um so they could really let their hair down and and just have have fun backstage and a lot of times people people wouldn't even play they'd just sit sit back there and hang out and talk to their friends that they maybe hadn't seen for a while um and um it was always a really good shrimp cocktail. I remember it being really good. That's all I wanted to know. That's all I wanted to hear about. So that's, 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 that's yeah, good. Yeah, I'm good great, actually. I'm yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, I, and so, and Tony thought the shrimp cocktail was actually good. <laughs> that was the moment. It was really, yeah. it was really nice. Anyway, uh, nice to no, talk so, to you. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, no, so, so Tony, I had never seen Tony at the thing before. Um, and usually like you're saying, like Tony would do what he needed to do and be really sweet. Like if you saw him between the, it was a Lincoln, right? Between the Lincoln and, and, um, and, and the stage, he would be super sweet. And there were times when he would, uh, he would, there were a couple beautiful times where we'd be at these, uh, provincial festivals somewhere I, I wouldn't even remember what the names of them were but there was i remember him being on tour with with pete rowan and just asking me hey, hey chris you want to play this one with us i was just like what you mean just like come up yeah yeah come on come on and so like i go i go up like four songs in or whatever and play a song and he just looks at me like 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 don't go like go. i i start kind of you know i don't want to overstay right but i but I, I start, I also, I, I, I couldn't tell, I couldn't quite tell. And I'm like, so I start to kind of back away and he's like, no, 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 come on, come on. We play like nine pound hammer and salt Creek, things like that. Um, so that, that was a really, that was maybe the first moment where I felt like he, he, he wa like wanted to play some music with me. Um, and, but still there would be these very odd experiences. And finally I'd like step off stage and he'd get back into that car and and off he'd go and that would be it until until the next time i'd i'd see him and again he'd always be really sweet but there the music making would happen in a sit-in kind of a situation on stage and except for this one night at merlefest uh lay i mean way towards the end of the midnight jam and tony tony came in I mean, I want to say, I want to say the whole thing was over at that point. Like the actual, like what we were doing in front of people was done. And it was just, it was just musicians hanging out, lots of them. And in the back there, I think it was, uh, I remember for sure that it was, it was Tony and Tim O'Brien and me. And I think, I think it was Schatz, Mark Schatz playing bass. Um, and I, feel like I think uh, I, I I can't necessarily remember I, I, so I think Tim was playing fiddle right um, and um, and there would have been another person or two might have been Pete Warnick playing banjo um, but but I mean I was just so I was so locked onto this moment with with Tony um, and uh and tim because and, and so what what the crazy thing that happened that i didn't get into on that that 
social media post is that Tony had, you know, he, he hadn't had a voice for years at that point. Um, you know, just kind of, again, his, his growling speech that he would do. Um, and, but I hadn't heard him sing or knew of anyone who had heard him sing for a long time at that point. He was, he was playing and I don't even know how, like what prompted him to get the guitar out. I'd never seen him do that. Like just, just decide to start jamming. I, I know that, that Jerry, you know, people like Jerry and Bela and, um, that they would have seen him in that mode. Sam obviously would have seen him in that mode where like, yeah, let's pick, let's pick. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had never seen him like that. It was always like a professional thing and, and he would have fun on stage and like that magical moment I talked about at that, at the little tiny festival, like he was having fun and interacting. And again, I felt 10 foot tall and bulletproof playing with him, but I had never seen him just like, I want to play music right now. And I just want to play music. And that was his, he kept saying that. Oh, I want to, I want to pick, let's play another, play another one, play another one. And he started, so he, he was like, Timmy, sing one. And, um, and so Tim, Tim starts singing, uh, and the chorus comes along and I had been singing some tenor here and there. Oh boy. What standards? Yeah. Just standards. Like probably, I, I mean, I want to say it was like little cabin home on the hill or something. Right. And, and so we we had been we'd been doing things it, just things like that. And Tony would often Tony was like suggesting the songs too. So he was he was taking a very like a leadership role in this jam. And you could tell he he knew that it was a moment, and he knew that it was a moment for us. Um, and it was it was it, it felt like something out of the Lord of the Rings, man. Like this like this moment where the where the hero knows he needs to be the hero. And just does it just goes for it. And like the moment, like I felt like there was fanfare surrounding every, every one of these declarations. Like, and now we shall play little cabin home on the hill. Uh, how it felt. And, 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 there, and there was a 20 elf salute for this moment. Um, you know, it, but it's how it felt. It felt yeah. so epic. And this moment, and again, I think it was, it was a little cabin home on the hill or it was something like that. It really does not matter. It does not matter. What matters is that we get to the course, and I had been singing a little bit of of tenor with Tim. Um, just when we get to the course, no one else was, so I decided, well, I'll do it. And we get to the course, and I here I go into the tenor, and all of a sudden there's Tony just singing baritone, like he just started in. Um, and and as far as I like. like I mean, maybe maybe little isolated events like this had, had happened here and there that other people had been a part of, but no no one in that room had heard him sing um, since he since he had lost his voice so publicly, um, and he started singing this beautiful, you know, husky scratchy, but him. It was there. Baritone. It was there, and it was gorgeous, and it was you know Tim of fucking Brian singing lead, so you've got. Tim singing lead and Tony singing baritone and, you know, like with those, those kind of JD Crow like baritone lines only with, again, just, just perfection more, but a you know, more of a singer than, than JD. What JD was, is such an incredible baritone singer, but, um, but you know, when, when it, when it's Tony there, 
oh, just all of that, all of that toniness. It was, it was incredible. And and he then he just decided to keep going, and he would call out another, he would call out another vocal song, and and sure, and every time he'd come in with the baritone part. Um, and I'd also never really heard him singing. Maybe I'd hear. Uh, Singing baritone is where I was going to go with that. Maybe I'd heard him sing a little baritone on 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 board tapes, um, from like dry like dry Bailiflex Drive era board tapes where Sam Bush might do some lead singing. Yeah, on, I think some bluegrass album band stuff where Doyle takes the lead or something like that. Maybe you know? Doyle takes the lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doyle might take the lead here and there. Um, and so. But it, it, and the, the jam, I mean, it lasted maybe two hours and felt like it was over in five minutes. Um, and and at the end, at the end of that jam session, and again, I mean, I'd had these really nice, encouraging uh, uh, interactions with Tony. But at the end of that jam, he gave me a big hug and he said, I love you, man. Like he he I, I and I. And that's 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 kind of the last that's the last uh, that's the last time I got to play with him I think except maybe maybe just a, a couple more times on stage it might be the first it might be the only time I really got to do that the sort of playing that um, that creates um, that that creates that kind of feeling like with another musician it it, it there's a certain amount of that can happen on stage, but only a certain amount. Like it's, it's so public. Um, but like, you know, you, you fall in love with someone in private <laughs> and, and musicians fall in love with each other in private. Um, and it does feel like that. I, it, you know, I mean, I guess it's not in love, but like that, that, that love that comes mm -hmm. the, the, this, this familial love that could like this, the blood is thicker than water feeling of like we have now connected in a way that is that is in you know that will can't be severed it was it was i felt it forged between us that night and you know we never we never got I, I don't feel like we ever got to do that again um not you, not in you, that did, way did you again, get to speak be, to him again did you remember the last time you spoke to him yeah i think the last time i spoke to him was was at at um at dune grass in Michigan, this is a long time ago, maybe maybe twelve years ago, maybe maybe more, uh, somewhere in the like twelve to thirteen years ago zone. And he was a super sweet, and it was with Critter. Critter was there too. This so was Punch Brothers. He was always so. Uh, yeah, this was a this was early Punch Brothers gig, um, and Tony was playing. He played beautifully that day again such touch he, he you know he lost a lot of facility at that point um but but the stuff that made him him was stronger than ever there was some of the most some of the most ridiculously enlightened rhythm playing that he that he ever delivered was were you know towards the end of his hands still working um because his mind kept working and his love of music was was profound and that's something that I I heard about more through Critter than I actually experienced myself. You know, Critter got all those incredible lengthy one-on-one -on -one sessions. Um, whereas for me, like as far as the real personal music making, it was that night at Merlefest.
Um, but, oh, but what a night. <laughs> you, you, you were at Dunegrass and you guys got to talk and say hi. Mm. Yeah, we, we talked, we, he, he handed us, he handed us the he, critter and then me, the, the, the herringbone. Um, the guitar. Okay. That was the only time I got to play that guitar, the guitar. Yeah. That was the only time I ever got to play it. Um, and, um, how was it? It was, it was, well, I mean, what I could hear of it was incredible, but it was backstage and it was like, I mean, it was something like loud jam band on or something, but to feel it under my hands and like, you feel it vibrate, you know, you kind of know what it sounds like based on how it's feeling in your body. Um, and, and I could, you know, I was putting my ear up to critter playing it and Tony didn't play it at all. Um, back there, just handed it, handed it to critter. And then, and then I got a turn with it as well. What did you play? And, um, Oh God, I think I just probably just like a little, I, I would think it was like, what is, so I'm already not really a guitar player. Like I can do it, but it's not, it's not really my thing. So I probably just played like a little St. Anne's reel or something. Right. Um, you know, just like a fiddle tune and nothing like not, not nothing of Tony's and no Tony licks for sure. <laughs> um, but you know, there was a time when I would sit down with a guitar and try and learn all the, all the Tony licks. Cause you can play them on mandolin of course, but it's not, it doesn't, the physical sensation is not, um, it's not as satisfying. Before we go, and you've been very generous, paint, paint me a picture when you think of them. Paint me a picture of what comes to mind, your sort of lasting image in your mind of Tony Rice. What do you see? That I see, first I see the, first I see the, I mean, it's like the, the ponytail and a red tie and a dark suit and and his face you know so still just looking down at the guitar the way that he would look down at that guitar and like more with more focus than you know has I, I've ever seen in one person um and and that little wry grin that he would give sam or jerry or bela or mark or, or mark schatz um when they did something that he liked on stage that's what i see yeah um, well you know it's been it's been a joy to talk to you um and I, to go back to what you were saying earlier, that like you know, will, will Tony ever really die um, if his if his music is is still with us and his influence is still with us? And and I'll I'll echo that and add that what a legacy he's left through you and and through your music and through your uh, your 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 companions as well. So thanks a lot for your time and thanks oh, a lot for thank telling you, us your your, uh, your memories of your friend. That's what a what a man. We love you, Tony. We miss you so much.
Thank you so much to Chris. I mean, you gotta imagine that Chris Dealey has played like what, like two thousand, three thousand, like unbelievable, life changing concerts for the people in the audience. But like to know that it was a backstage jam with Tony Rice that like has imprinted on his memory so profoundly. It just goes to show the power of this music, especially the power of the informal nature of this music. So thanks so much to Chris for making the time. I I do really appreciate it. Up next, we have a bandmate of Chris's in the Punch Brothers, uh, Chris Eldridge or Critter. He was one of the first people everyone thought about, I think, or at least in my social circle, everyone thought about after Tony Rice's death. Because not only is he a disciple of Tony, not only is his guitar playing influenced by Tony... But he knows him really well. He, in fact, he spent time with Tony Rice. He lived with him for a little while, learned everything he could, and got some really interesting perspective on who Tony Rice was. And he's going to share that with you right now. Critter joined us from his home in Nashville. Critter, thanks for doing this. It's a nice. I'm I'm sorry for you. Um, I'm I'm just sorry for you. I know how close he was to you. Yeah, he was. Um... He was outside my kind of immediate uh, blood family, I think, or my, you know, my step parents. Like, I don't think there was a person who was more influential on my development as a person and kind of what my soul was all about than Tony. You know, he was like a, um, he was like an uncle in a way, uh, but he was also kind of like this incredible guide. Um, Can you t- who, t- tell me more about that, like in terms of like what you're soul was all about well what i mean by that is that he um you know he he kind of redirected um my ideas about why what music is what music can express why music is important and and um and kind of how it can be a vehicle an incredible vehicle for self-expression um and and how you know you can really tell a lot about a person by the way they play music and that you know playing music well um it could even be a way to kind of make yourself a better uh person you know i i think with tony there was there was so much um well first of all when when i kind of came to him he he kind of took in i'd known him my whole life you know um he's the one who kind of brought back the nickname critter and everything and all that and and i started really hanging out with him when i was um when we kind of really rebonded i'd I'd, he'd become a hero to me by the time i was 14 and the seldom scene would play with the tony rice unit every every new year's eve and maybe they'd do another show at the birchmere but that was at least an annual thing but was he just like another bluegrass musician that your dad knew like as far as you knew like just another you know. Well, when I was a kid, when I was a uh, when I was a, a kid, uh, there was some of that, and then uh, you know, at a certain point, he. I think when I started paying attention to any of it, you know, Tony kind of stood out uh, a little bit, just because he carried himself very differently. He wasn't unlike Mike Aldridge in that way, where whereas they both, you know, dressed beautifully and carried themselves in a certain way, and the sound that they both would uh, render was so clear and. Um, and so strong and individual. So I think in that way, Tony always stood out. But once I, once I kind of uh, took to playing music myself, uh, and 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 particularly playing guitar because I decided I wanted to be a guitar player, um, I, you know, Tony really, as soon as that was a thing at all, it, it, he kind of blew my mind. Uh, you know, you could, 
tell even from a young age before I got into, you know, acoustics or got into playing his music, it was like he was just a titan, you know, and seeing him was a I mean, I have very clear memories of seeing Tony Rice playing at like the Graves Mountain Festival of Music, you know, with the unit and just it being this, uh, you know, kind of impossibly it was like Zeus was up there or something. I mean, he had that kind of presence. Um, but then then as I kind of got a little bit older and got more into his thing, he was always really nice to me. He was super nice to to kids. He was always very encouraging. He was like he was actually a lovely teacher in a way. My brother and I were reminiscing about that. My brother Ben is uh, he was he's 54 now, I think or he's about to turn 54. So he, he and I grew up. I'm 38. We grew up kind of separately. We didn't share all these experiences. But Ben was a great guitar player. And he has a lot of memories of hanging out with Tony because Tony back in those days would stay with my family like before I was born. And so he and Tony would like hang out and, and pick sometimes. And Tony, you know, he was saying Tony was just always so nice and cool and encouraging. And um, I that, like Tony and your dad got along, too. Oh yeah, they were they were they were definitely buddies. Um, you know, my dad knew him uh, from you know the early days of the seldom scene, and they were crossing paths with the Bluegrass Alliance and then um, J.D. Crow in the New South. And um, and yeah, Tony just became you know it was all he was a, a, a great guy, and he was a, he was a member of the community. You know, what ultimately was a pretty tight knit community. The community that I can relate to from my time growing up as a musician, like when I was in the string dusters, you know, and I think about seeing uncle Earl out at a festival or what, you know, there are a million bands like that. We were just all kind of baby bands together. And I think, I think maybe the seldom scene and like JD Crow in the new South kind of had a similar and, and new grass revival once they got going, you know, I think it was a similar kind of thing, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Tony, uh, was always a friend. He was actually going to join the seldom scene, by the way. Really? Um, Yes. Um, John Starling, I think in 19, like maybe 75, was going to leave the band. And the, the plan was, and this was, they'd arranged, I mean, this was the plan, is that Tony Rice was going to be the lead singer and guitar player for the seldom scene. Um, would that mean that he would stop? Like, cause I know the thing about the seldom scene is that they all had other gigs. Like your dad was a prof, you know, John Duffy repaired instruments. Was that, was Tony going to, was Tony going to become a wheelwright or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Well, he might've been a watchmaker who knows uh, in, his, <laughs> in his off time, but, but yeah, he was going to join the band. Um, and, and so they made a record together. There was like some of the guys from the scene, my dad and, and uh, Aldridge and Tom Gray, and John Starling produced it. Duffy didn't play on that record. Larry Rice played on it. But this record, California Autumn, um, where you can sort of hear some of what that might have uh, been like. But anyway, uh, Starling decided that he wanted to uh, stick around. So he wound up not leaving when he was planning on it. And Tony, meanwhile, you know, played on this Bill Keith record, met Grisman and heard what Grisman was kind of conceiving of. And and everything kind of changed. Tony wound up Starling stuck around. Tony moved to California and the rest is kind of history. But oh but yeah, they were they were they were buddies, you know. So, so you were saying that you were, you know, when, when your, your brother was playing with him and he would stick around and jam a little bit with your brother. And then you sort of, you know, you know, Tony, when you're a kid and you grow up and you start to take on the guitar and Tony sort of re-enters your life as yeah. less of your dad's buddy and more of like a perhaps like a, a figure, you know, more. Yeah, a, he was definitely you know, a hero. An aspirational figure, you know. Definitely an aspirational figure, kind of larger than life. I mean, he, yeah, he was someone that you could a hero. I mean, I think a hero is a fair way of saying it, especially when you're when you're that age, you're so impressionable and that's kind of 
I think a lot of um, who we make ourselves, you know, we, we can, Tony actually had a great thing on his Twitter handle. It said, invent yourself. And, and we do kind of invent ourselves somewhat, I think, whether we realize it or not. And, and at that age, you know, I had, I had people to look up to. I saw Tony Rice and I was like, wow, you can, that's amazing. This guy is really incredible. And, and, and he kind of loomed really large in my, um, conscience, you know, from then on. And, and I, so I got really serious about studying him, um, and I was kind of more into it through the jazz side of things because I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to play bluegrass. My mom and dad both played banjo. That was the last thing I wanted to do was have anything to do with playing bluegrass, even though, I, you know, of course I loved it. But, um, but I kind of got into it. And then as I got older, I started playing with the seldom scene. And I, I kind of thought, you know what, if I'm going to be sitting in, it was pure nepotism, you know, but it was like if I'm going to be sitting in with these guys, I should actually be able to, you know, be a little bit legit on playing some more proper bluegrass. Um, so I started studying Tony and, and it became this incredible school um, because, you know, it wasn't, it's not that hard to learn the notes that Tony plays in those sequences. Um, it was a lot technically easier to get the notes out than all the other music I was trying to play before that, all this crazy jazz fusion or Bela stuff with the flectones or whatever. And, um, but, but what became really interesting to me uh, I got that stuff pretty quickly, but then it, then the task was like, well, what? How? It doesn't sound like Tony when I play these notes. Like, why does it sound so much better? And it kind of turned into a task for a while of like really going like super deep into studying it, studying the deepest nuances I I could at the time, of like how like why does his timing feel so good? How? Let me see if I can like incorporate that timing. And so that was around the time that Tony and I really reconnected. I was super duper deep into his thing, and I really could. I mean, I could sound. At that point, I was like maybe 19, a lot like 18, maybe a lot like Tony. I mean, studied his records and had all the little inflections down. And he, I think he thought that was kind of cool that like a, that I wasn't, that my copying of his thing wasn't cheap. He could see that I was looking, I was kind of going in and looking deeper to try and, you know, just investigate a little deeper. And so like I he think did with Clarence, it sounds like. Exactly. And I think he appreciated that. And I think that was kind of what um, opened the door to me in terms of our relationship, because he was like, oh, this kid actually, he kind of cares. He's trying he's looking a little deeper than than I think uh, a lot of people who were copying his his thing. And, and so then college came around and I had this opportunity uh, to create a, a, a course of study at Oberlin for winter term. And I called Tony up and we'd kind of had this great weekend together at Merlefest uh, where we'd really kind of properly bonded. I mean, I'd seen him at shows and he was always nice to me. We'd, uh, but but uh, at Merlefest in 2001, that's where we really kind of bonded. We stayed up a bunch and stayed up really late. And, um, and then that next January is when I kind of went down and stayed with him at his house and and he kind of really took me under his wing kind of as as like a student basically now what i find interesting about that is you you didn't play together part of you you went down there for for college as part of a you know a a sort of a a self-assigned thing and and went down and and learned from tony rice you would think that that would be a lot of you with the d18 on your knee and him with his and you guys are playing june apple a bunch yeah um it's really interesting to me that there was not you're learning from him there was almost no picking 
There was no pick. I mean, there, which is not to say that we never, like, the guitar went back and forth a few times, you know, when we'd talk about something and, and he would kind of show me something or show me about touching a guitar in, in a certain way that you can, like, kind of coax sound out of a guitar. Um, but, but, yeah, I think, well, again, I think because he recognized that I'd kind of gone so deep um, on that thing that he was doing at that you know, earlier on, he, he, I remember him telling me one time, I remember him saying, there's no, like, there's no point in me trying to, you know, show you how to play gold rush. Like, um, he, he just, he, he almost was disdainful of that kind of thing. He, 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 what he was interested in, I think he was like, okay, this, this kid, uh, really loves music, obviously. And, and really, uh, you know, is has figured out a bunch of stuff about the guitar. He's going to know how to play guitar. That's going to, and he's going to figure it out for himself. That's going to be fine. But let maybe I can kind of guide um, him in terms of, you know, I feel like what Tony gave me was uh, he he shared. It was all about sharing wisdom. That was kind of that was the nature of um, of that experience. I think. Can you give me an example of something you learned from Tony? that you still apply to your playing to this day? Oh God. I mean, everything, you know? Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that, uh, springs to mind is, uh, you know, I remember him saying once, um, you know, so I was young and I I was, I was really interested in being like a hotshot guitar player too. Like I really, you know, I was still a teenager. And so I wanted to, I'd, you know, I had all this Eric Johnson and stuff I'd been listening to as a kid, and I could kind of do some of it on acoustic guitar. And I never really heard anybody do that before, and it sounded neat to me. I was like, ah, oh, you know. And and I remember Tony telling me one time, I, I was sitting in his basement playing uh, Cattle in the Cane, playing all these crazy big intervals and stuff, and it's fast. And, and he just said, he said, Critter, like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, he said, he was like, um, you know, in essence, he was saying, don't forget the whole goal, the whole reason, you know, to do this is not to play crazy guitar. It's not about you. It's not about all that. It's like to, it's to collaborate with your fellow musicians to make sounds that are pleasant to the ear. And wow. And that was, it's almost like, it's almost like a Zen cone, you know, like you can, it sounds like kind of trite on the surface, but man, you can just think about that and sort of meditate on it. And it's, it's actually pretty deep. That will guide you through a lot of stuff. Especially in music like yours, uh, like, like bluegrass music can often be one uppy. Yeah. You know, it can be someone plays a solo. It may be, it might be un, unspoken. It is mm-hmm. unspoken. But yeah. it's, you know, someone play, you want to play a better one. You want to show what you can do. Someone you respect is in the jam. You want to show, you know, yeah. this, that's, that's quite profound, especially for the genre, you know. Totally. And which is not to say that he also, I mean, he, it, I mean, that what you're saying about bluegrass is totally true. I mean, it's absolutely baked into the, into the most fundamental DNA of the music because this music was created by Bill Monroe, who grew up as this like, um, you know, isolated cross-eyed child who his parents were em- embarrassed by, who had him like hide under the house, you know, when he was a kid. And so he, you know, he kind of always had this chip on the shoulder. Of, I'm going to show you guys like what I can do. I'm going to be the man. And that's just part of what bluegrass actually is. I mean, that's baked into it. And Tony definitely learned that lesson as well as anybody. I mean, when he took a solo, it's like everybody knew just sit back. I mean, he's going to step up. But but I think what what he was actually 
way more interested in than that in terms of what he actually cared about um, was was you know enlivening the music and lifting everybody else up, making his fellow musicians as comfortable as they could be and and kind of prodding them into being better. I mean, the way that he played rhythm guitar, um, everybody you talk to who played with Tony, I mean, everybody I've ever talked to um, says the same thing. They just say it was so easy. It was so easy. And they and you also so that's one thing that is like a shared experience, at least based on what I've heard. But like then as a listener, I feel like I you can go listen to those things and, and, and try and study it. And you hear Tony completely reacting. If somebody's taking a solo, you'll hear Tony um you know, reacting to that in a certain way. It's not that he was just up there kind of playing great timing. He was he was he was kind of um, it was a dialogue. If somebody did something, he would react to it. And then that, whoever the soloist was or whatever, they would react to that. And, and it, it's not even a one-upsmanship. It's just a, it's a, con- it's more of a conversation and more of, of something where, where it kind of, you know, brings everybody to life, you know, a surprise and, and you kind of, your eyes open a little bit more, um, and you're just paying a little bit more attention. And and I think he he was he was the greatest at that because he would throw in all these incredible unexpected you know rhythm things in his rhythm guitar weird chords uh, weird syncopations timing things even as the flow was just right there so it was easy everybody says it's so easy but he was also just kind of getting in there jabbing and doing all these cool things I think he was also a great mentor for people in how to navigate music not just how to play music but how to navigate music yeah. Stuff. So did you ever talk to him about Punch Brothers? Did you ever talk to him? Not really. You know, I mean, a little bit. I talked to him. Um, I definitely. So Tony, as you may know, it's a common theme uh, with people who knew him is that he kind of fell out of touch with people, even people he was extremely close with. Um, and, um, and, and, and that happened with me, too. Like, we were very close for a period of Oh, three or four years. I mean, we'd talk on the phone very regularly. I'd stayed with him, rode cross country with him. You know, he was like my mentor. He was my, he was like almost like an uncle or something. And then, and then, then one day kind of quit texting me back and quit calling me back. And it really hurt my feelings for a while. I mean, I, I'd grieve it until I realized, oh, he's done this with <laughs> literally everyone else I know who knows him. But, um, so I remember calling him up, um, when I kind of had this opportunity um, to leave uh, the string, du- or not to leave the string dusters, when I had this opportunity to join Punch Brothers, um, we'd started working on music together, um, and it very quickly became obvious that this was there was something special about that ensemble, and 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 the opportunity for growth for me was massive. But then again, the string dusters were truly felt like brothers to me. I mean, I loved those guys and they, they, we really came of age together, me and Pandolfi especially, and I really loved them. And so it, and, and we'd kind of gone into this thing together. And so I called, it was a, it was, it was really two things pulling on me hard. I'd never experienced anything like this in my life. And I, to this day, I don't know if I've had that, that kind of um, conflict um, within myself. And, and so I called Tony, I was like, Hey man, I need your help. Can you please call me up? Call me. And he, and of course, he needed him. He was there. So, uh, um, and I talked to him, and he said, he said, you know, if you have the opportunity to go grow like that, if you have the opportunity to, you know, B 
be in a band with Chris Thiele, who's like, who's on fire right now. His brain is just exploding with all this stuff. He's like, you gotta, you gotta do that. You gotta, you gotta follow that opportunity. Um, and, and I really, um, appreciated that advice and I kind of, I kind of knew it already, but, but that was really, um, that was really, um, validating and important. Um, we didn't really talk much about punch after that. I mean, by that point we were, we were pretty out of touch. I, I talked to him over the years occasionally, but it was mostly pretty short or I would see him somewhere and, and he would kind of, you know, I, I always knew, uh, I always knew that Tony loved me. That was never a thing that I ever doubted for a second, even till the, till the end. But, but it was like, he kind of just didn't, a lot of times he just kind of wanted to keep moving. When was the last um, time you spoke? The last time I talked to him was um, not quite two years ago. It was about a, uh, maybe in, it was February of, I think, of 2019. It was whenever John Starling passed away. And I sent um, something to um, uh, to Pam um, and and he called me uh you know, later that, that night or the next day. And, uh, I, you know, talked to him for, for not that long, probably 10, 10, 15 minutes. Um, but just kind of heard, you know, it was nice to talk to him, kind of heard what was going on in his life a little bit as far as he would share any of that, which wasn't that much, but, but, um, you know, he was, um, he was just such a, um, he had such a kind heart. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I kind of always knew, knew him in this way where he was, uh, you know, he kind of took me, he really took me under his wing, you know, so there was there whatever relate, however you want to define that kind of relationship, like he, he, he did, he took me under his wing. Um, but, but he just, I always knew him as this guy with this really just warm, kind heart. I, I there's not a, I can't find better words than that. And, um, and and very sensitive. He was such a sensitive person, and so we just had this really sweet conversation, um, just about some kind of deep, heartfelt stuff there. Um, and um, and that was, but that was the last time I, I spoke to him. And I would I would send him, you know, it's so funny. I'd send him, uh, you know, texts every now and then like on his birthday or just whenever I was thinking about him and you know if you scroll through my text messages there'd be like 10 green uh, bubbles on the right side of my iPhone then every now and then there'd be one gray one where he'd write back like every three years uh, in all caps because he texted in all caps all the time except for T he'd sign his name in lowercase or um, but yeah so I, I was mostly out of touch but um, you know I feel like when we did connect it was it was always um really nice and felt very real. Well, I'll, I'll close off with the three. You've been really generous and, and, and I appreciate this. Um, yeah. I'll close off with the sort of three questions I've been asking everybody at the end of this thing. Um, they're a bit, they're a bit hard, but I, I, I've, been, I've been enjoying the answers we've been getting from them. Um, what was he like? Um, uh, care to guide that question anymore? No, no. Okay. Um, well, well, he was he was extremely um I think more than anything when I think about Tony I think about kind of the spirit of Tony 
and that's how I relate to his music, but that's also how I related to him as a person. And he always struck me as like a like a um, like a very proud, very kind of singular um, spirit. He was like kind of um, nice and sociable, but also kind of a loner. Um, I think very content to be left with himself. Drove by himself he in was, the nighttime after the gigs, you know. Yeah, um, he was he was extraordinarily intelligent. He was very smart um, and very he was not just very smart, but he was he was very um, articulate. He, I think he was a very articulate thinker. In other words, he, he he in his intelligence, he also there was a real clarity to the way his mind worked. He had this really rich but very clear thinking mind, um, which which I think is really reflected in his music. I mean, you can hear that 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 sense of clarity and and how he presents his singing and his playing and and everything. Um, and a really he had a really um, warm heart. He had a he had a really funny sense of humor. He, he was like, he was a funny guy. He was like kind of quirky, like almost like absurd, um, sense of humor where he'd say these ridiculous things over and over, um, throughout the, uh, you know, just throughout your time with him. Um, yeah, Bela told me he would say and, you look marvelous all the time. And he said, Oh he yeah. Yeah. Darling. Yeah. He called everybody years, darling. And, and yeah. And, until yeah. it was funny again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He was like the original, uh, I don't know, not Tim and Eric, but yeah, something like that. He was, he was, he was, he, he kind of appreciated that absurd sense of humor. Um, what made his playing so special? I think what made his playing so special was a combination of two things. Um, one is that he was just so good. It's like Steve Martin says, be so good. They can't ignore you. Tony was so good um, that you, he he grabbed your attention. There's certain musicians like that where, you know, his command of, of technique and timing and all these fundamentals were so good that you kind of, he got your attention. You couldn't, you, you kind of had to pay attention to it. But ultimately, I, um, I kind of feel like that's not actually what the most incredible thing was. That pulled you in, but, but, but what actually made him the greatest ever is that it was all um, an expression of his spirit. It's like he, he really valued music, I think, as a, uh, as a medium for um, understanding who someone was, you know? And there, you know, that was something that he talked about. He definitely would talk about that sort of thing a lot. And, and I think he drove to um, imp like impart himself on the music. He, he, he strove to kind of like just be himself when he was doing it and strove to be so honest in that way. And I think that's why part of why he was so good. It wasn't it wasn't just that he played great and he sang great. It, it's that he he it was also honest. And that's why we all care that's why that's music that has moved us and and why you know it's it's never going to get old we're going to be 90 years old and still be able to hear like this person's soul basically their spirit and what they what they cared about you can hear that he's so honest um and and it's a it's that it's like red beans and rice you put that together with this you know epic ability to play and sing and it's a it's a very potent combination when you 
in your mind's eye, if I ask you to picture Tony Rice, can you paint a picture for me of what you see? Oh, um, I see a man who is who's so um, I just see a man who's very focused and very clear eyed. He had these incredible, he had amazing eyes. They were, they were very intense, um, but not, not in like a scary way. You know, sometimes people have eyes that are intense and it can be like a little bit like, whoa, um, his weren't like that. They were just, they were, they were penetrating in a really warm way, um, in a very curious way. Um, and so I, I, whether he was, whether you're talking to him or, or, or more often the way I can just picture him sitting there thinking about something or talking about something and his eyes kind of being a little open as he's just really thinking about and, and living fully in, in whatever that thought is. Um, that's, that's kind of how I, I picture him. There was so much time. Most of the time that I spent with him was like that. I mean, there wasn't a ton of time we spent together with the guitars in our hand, although there was, was some, but you know, we spent time sitting next to each other on his couch, listening to records and talking about it or sitting next to him in his Mustang, you know, Cobra driving, you know, to Colorado and back, um, or whatever, you know, that was, that was kind of the time that I logged with Tony. And that's kind of how I see him as just being this really intelligent, clear thinking, um, slightly goofy in this really dry kind of way um just beautiful guy who 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 i just loved every minute that i was in his presence i i've been you know this this these these episodes have sort of been what was originally supposed to be one episode has kind of turned into two which is those who got like played with him you know the grisman and bela and, and sam and jerry and then like the, those who were influenced by him, you know, mm-hmm. you and, and Josh and Thiele and, and, and Molly and, and, and others. Um, and what's been clear to me, and I, I said this to Thiele as well, what's been clear to me in this, these, these interviews is just the legacy he leaves through you, like the legacy he leaves through you. Yeah. And, um, and how, how special that really is. So thank you for, thank you for talking to us about this today. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I'll talk about Tony any day. He's my guy. Thank you so much to Critter. I, I really appreciate the time. And uh, you might know Critter as the guitarist for Punch Brothers. I also want to highlight the music you're hearing right now, actually, is this incredible duo he's in with Julian Lodge. He also, along with Kristen Andreessen, performs the themed Toy Heart this podcast and co-produced the most recent uh, record by the Brightsiders, who were an incredible children's group. So make sure to check that out. Up next, Molly Tuttle. Molly Tuttle is an amazing guitar player in the bluegrass and sort of acoustic idioms, but the challenge presented by Molly is also sort of an opportunity because Molly Tuttle didn't meet Tony Rice. She never spent time with him the way the other guests on this podcast have. But really, isn't that more meaningful? Because as Chris Thiele said earlier, will Tony ever really die if his music lives on? 
And I believe his music lives on through people like Molly, who maybe didn't know him personally, but feel so inspired by him. We caught up with Molly Tuttle from Nashville. Uh, so, Molly, I guess right off the bat, um, what, what what went through your head when you heard that Tony had passed? Um, well, I was pretty heartbroken over it because he was the person I remember being my first ever guitar hero when I was getting so into playing guitar and I got to see him as a kid play, but I never got to meet him. And I think a lot of us who were really, really big fans of Tony and who he inspired, um, we were hoping he would reemerge and start playing shows again. Cause I hadn't seen him play in a, in years and he had just kind of gone quiet and wasn't performing. And so I think we were all a bit worried about his health and other things, but kind of holding out hope that he would, um, come back and perform and we'd all get to see him play again, which is always so amazing. Um, so yeah, I was just, it was just really sad. And I went back and listened to his records and kind of remembered how I heard them for the first time and wanted to play guitar just like him. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of feelings. I was actually visiting family at the time, which was nice because I got to hang out with my dad and my dad's a huge Tony Rice fan. So we listened to his albums together and had a little jam and played his songs. And so that was really nice to have that connection. What did you play? Um, We played Freeborn Man. I think we played Church Street Blues. We were just going through his records and um, remembering which songs we knew and a lot of some of the stuff off um, the J.D. Crow album. I forget exactly which ones. Um, but yeah, we played a lot, a lot of his stuff. Did your dad know him? My dad, I think had met him. My dad moved to the Bay area, um, from Illinois because he loved music. He wasn't like a professional musician, but he loved the Grisman quintet and, and he loved Tony Rice. So he moved out to the Bay area, um, just cause he was really interested in the music scene and he wasn't doing music at the time, but um, he ended up getting to see Tony perform a lot. And he talks about one time with his band, he was in a band called the Griffin Quintet and they played locally. And one time he played at a bar in San Francisco and Tony was like sitting in the audience, which was really cool. And he says, he said at the music store where he teaches, my dad teaches lessons out of a music store or he did until COVID and now he teaches online. But um, he said they had Tony Rice's phone number written down because Tony had called them and said he wanted some guitar students and to send students his way. So my dad was saying he always regrets not like taking a lesson from Tony. I didn't know Tony wanted to teach at all. Yeah, I guess there was a period of time when he was teaching private lessons in the Bay Area, which is, I didn't know that either. Right, because I associate him so much so with North Carolina or, you know, or with Tennessee. But yeah, he's he's from, he's Californian, and unlike yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. And I think like, at the time, maybe he wasn't touring very much and was just picking up students. When did you first sort of become aware of Tony Rice? Like, what's your earliest memory of knowing that Tony Rice sort of existed? Um, I think I became aware of him probably a couple years after I started playing guitar and I was getting more and more into it. And I remember asking my dad, like, hey, who are the bluegrass guitar player who are like the most well-known bluegrass guitar players. And he mentioned Tony Rice. And then like, I heard, I always heard a lot of music growing up because we'd put on records all the time. Um, 
but I do remember my dad kind of like showing me some of his signature licks and um, putting on his records. I really remember hearing Freeborn Man for the first time because that has those guitar licks at the beginning. He like sings the line and then plays a fancy lick. And that was, I thought was so cool. I really wanted to learn how to play like that. Did you go, did you go deep? Did you go note for note? Did you start transcribing? A little bit. I had like this Tony Rice book of all his solos. I think it was called like Tony Rice guitar or something. Um, And so I did learn, I remember learning plastic banana. That was my first Tony Rice tune I learned. Um, It might've just been his guitar record, like his really early solo record that he did. Um, It had all of those. And then I remember learning his solo to Lonesome Fiddle Blues note for note as well. Those were the two that I worked on a lot as a kid. I want to talk about like maybe what you took from that in just a second, but you mentioned you got to see him. Mm-hmm. Was that a, Harley Strictly in, in yeah. San Francisco? Can, what, what do you remember from that? I remember him standing on stage. And I mainly remember like the tone of his guitar and the way he stood really still on stage. He had this like kind of statuesque persona on stage where he like didn't move much and his fingers, you could hardly see them move because it was so fluid. Um, and he was just so cool and like chill as he played these amazing lines. And then I remember the tone of his guitar was so um, special to me. It like really rang in this amazing way that I don't think a lot of other people can make guitars sound like that. Like he definitely had a very distinctive tone with his playing. What do you remember feeling when you saw him? Um, I remember feeling in awe of him and just like he had this larger than life quality that I was just kind of, it felt really magnetic toward to me. I just wanted to watch him play and like hang on every note and really pay attention to what he was doing. And then I get to, got to see him again when I went to IBMA once or twice as I think I was probably 14 or 15 and I would fly out um, to Nashville to do the IBMA. They had like this kid's um, thing. I think I did it maybe when I was 12 and 13 and I got to see him again there and that playing with J.D. Crow and that was super cool too. I remember just knowing that like it was a rare opportunity to get to see him so I was really paying close attention and I got to see him like kind of walking around the hallways and there's always this like mysterious air about him um, that really made me wonder about what he was like as a person but I never got to meet him. I'm so surprised. Yeah, I think I was just really shy. I probably could have walked up to him and said hi, but he looked so, I don't know, he was like the most famous person in the world to me, basically. Oh, really? (laughs) That's what I thought of him as. He's like a celebrity. He was like a celebrity when I was a kid. Talk to me about his playing. And like, you can get as nerdy as you want here. Mm -hmm. What do you notice when you hear Tony Rice play guitar? Um, I think it goes back to when I first saw him play on stage and what I noticed is his tone. Like, I think so many people learn his licks and, um, but when you hear him play those licks, it just sounds so different. Like the tone of the guitar he gets is so fluid. It's crystal clear. It has this really deep tone. And I think he can probably play, or he could probably play so many different guitars and still make it sound like himself. Um, And then the fluidity with, that he plays with. And again, when you watch his hands, you hardly see them move. And when you watch his right hand, like it seems like he's playing 
using like his fingers and his right hand a lot with his picking instead of like his wrist or his elbow. He's playing with these um, small finger movements. And I think it's just so, he really worked it out so precisely and that translates into the fluidity of his playing and the his how clean his notes are and each one rings out until he plays the next one. They're, they're not like chopped off at all. So um, yeah, I think he just worked so meticulously on his technique that it translates to his tone in a really interesting way. Well, can we talk more about that? And I know that what does Zappa say? Like talking about music is like dancing about architecture, but like, <laughs> I, I I can't help but notice and be struck by you saying that it, it may not have mattered what guitar he would pick up. Mm-hmm. He would be able to get the tone he wanted, the Tony Rice tone from it, which that says to me that it's coming from somewhere deeper. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think um, that's what I take away from his music. Every time I hear it is like, you're getting a piece of, who he is as a person that he's somehow translating through the music, like what he finds important, which might be playing with amazing tone, playing these fluid creative lines and like his singing that's so full of soul as well. You kind of get a sense for him as a person through his playing and, um, and you get a sense for how many hours he spent with his guitar to make that unique sound. I think there's something about coming to Nashville too, and just kind of hearing of the legend mm-hmm. of Tony Rice, did, did you find? Yeah, I think like since moving to Nashville, you hear more stories about him. And I mean, growing up in California where he spent so much of his career, um, the music scene is a bit more spread out and not everyone is like obsessed with Tony Rice and bluegrass. But here in Nashville, of course, he's like in the bluegrass scene. He's a god, basically. So yeah, I think being around, um, being in the music scene that he had such a big impact on, you get a sense that he's just for how how much of a influence he had on the music itself. I think he's one of the rare people that actually changed bluegrass music after the original guys who like Bill Monroe and Stanley Brothers and Flatten Scruggs, Tony so. kind of created. Well, I guess he created the template for guitar players to follow. He had this amazing vocal that people have imitated. And I think just like the albums he made with the Bluegrass Album Band and with J.D. Crow, so much of that became standard repertoire and people learned those versions of the songs. And his rhythm guitar playing too. I think so many people have imitated it. It's kind of created a new sound within Bluegrass. You're not the first person to say that. It's funny, you know, I I find that folks who aren't, maybe as seeped in bluegrass as as you are and the folks we're talking to from this thing will focus on tony's leads will focus on tony's guitar solos you're not the first person to say that it's it's his rhythm playing that can sometimes it's subtler and maybe not as easy for someone to notice and i can see you kind of smiling at the idea of his rhythm playing talk to me a little bit about tony rice's rhythm playing and maybe maybe what you noticed there yeah i think his rhythm playing is incredibly dynamic um i love listening to songs where he's just playing rhythm, like Bury Me Beneath the Weeping Willow with Ricky Skaggs. He's just playing this super simple rhythm part. And in between um, their vocal lines, he comes in and just accents it at the right times with more upstrums and brings up the dynamics and his bass runs and G runs always come in 
it's like interwoven with the song itself and with his singing. And you hear that on Church Street Blues too. He plays these cool cross-picking solos and then he weaves in those cross-picking lines with his rhythm playing as well. And I think when you listen to him play in a full band too, like when he's playing in the Grisman Quintet or playing with on Bela Flex albums, the way he plays with time, he like pushes it forward. And um, I think he just kind of holds down the rhythm in a way that makes everyone lock in with him and makes the band lock together. And he just kind of makes everyone else sound better with his rhythm playing. How did he, how did he influence you? Um, I feel like he influenced me partially indirectly through my dad, since my dad was such a big fan and kind of learned a lot of Tony Rice licks and songs. And then my dad was my guitar teacher. So through him, he, I realized later that a lot of the stuff he was teaching me were like Tony Rice licks and songs that Tony Rice played. And then as I discovered his music for myself, um, I just held him as the standard of great bluegrass guitar playing and, um, and the, amount of detail he puts into his playing and his own unique voice. I think that inspired me to want to want to make a sound that was my own as well. I didn't try to like copy him exactly, but um, I definitely wanted to play clean like him, but also have my own voice in the way that you can hear his playing and know that it's him. I, I really wanted that as well with my guitar playing. I think, I think that was important to him. Like, I think, I think he talked about, I think he didn't want imitators either. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do you think his legacy will be in the music? Um, I think a lot of it that I see is people playing his licks, trying to sound like him, but again, like going back to that essence of him as a musician and wanting to stand out and maybe not wanting, I don't know whether or not he wanted people to imitate his playing, but I think he just on like another level, he will keep inspiring people to push themselves to the limits of their abilities and to really have their own voice. I think when you get deep into Tony's music, you realize how much love he has for music and for sharing that part of himself with the world. So I think that's how he inspired others as well to really um, be their best selves in their music and share their unique um, style with the world. Do me a favor, um, and maybe this is a good way to end it. Um, when you picture Tony Rice, do me a favor and and picture Tony Rice in your head, mm-hmm. and and paint me a picture of what you see. Um, I see him standing kind of stoically in the suit that he it seems like he was always wearing this black suit that was simple but very elegant, and with his classic ponytail, light brown hair and just holding a dreadnought guitar. I'm imagining the one that was Clarence White's guitar. So a worn dreadnought guitar and just being very stoic, but very like, you can tell he's very wise and has a lot to say with that guitar that he's holding. Molly, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, um, you know, throughout, throughout this episode, we've been talking to people who, um, were influenced by him and it's only given me, you know, greater faith that even though he's gone, his music's not gone um, mm-hmm. through the folks I'm talking to today, like yourself. So uh, yes. thank, thanks for your time and, and take care thanks, of yourself. Bob. Yeah. Great talking to you. 
Thank you so much to Molly Tuttle. I know I said it a couple of times at the beginning and even in the interview, but you really do get that feeling, right? That like Tony's music is going to live on through folks like Molly. Thank you so much to Molly Tuttle for her time and definitely check out her music. It's absolutely incredible. Our final guest of part three, our final part of our tribute to Tony Rice is none other than Brian Sutton. And I want to give a shout out before we talk too much about Brian. Um, Brian Sutton did, in my opinion, the first big tribute to Tony Rice. Shortly after Tony Rice died, Brian hosted on Facebook a three-hour show where people were calling in. Musicians were zooming in to talk a little bit about Tony's influence. So Brian comes to Tony not just as an admirer, not just as a friend, not just as a contemporary, but also as someone who has taken in the stories and experiences and spirit of Tony Rice and is ready to talk a little bit about him. Uh, Brian is an incredible guitarist. You might know him as the guitarist for Ricky Skaggs' Kentucky Thunder when the Bluegrass Rules record came out, but since then he's gone on to become perhaps the preeminent bluegrass guitarist of his era, and he joined us to talk about his hero, Tony Rice. I guess right off the bat I should say I'm, I'm just so sorry for your loss. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, bluegrass is a family, and although I wasn't related to Tony Rice uh, and different folks I've talked to for the last week or so, it feels like a family loss. It feels, you know, especially talking to, uh, I talked to Mike Marshall yesterday, who's over there in Germany, and it's just kind of a little bit, it feels a little disconnected, and so chatted with him a little while, and it was it was sad, you know, we're sharing tears and stories, and and it does, it hits, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it hits at various levels in various parts of the day, you know, but, uh, there's a lot of this too, that I think personally and professionally recognizing that Tony Rice had, had in effect retired and, and was, you know, his years of consistent output, uh, had, had stopped, but there was still, you know, I think in some of us, maybe a hope that he would be able to show up somewhere to do something. And, uh, but at the end of the day, too, and that's been part of the, again, just sharing a conversation with friends of mine, just so thankful for any time I had with him. Um, and it's always weird to have heroes as your friends, just because even without that, you know, I'd still feel the same way, just still connected to bluegrass and connected to all those years of studying those records backwards and forwards. It's, it's, it can be scary, you know, having your heroes as your friends, you know. Cause they can, you can get, you can get close to them, you know, and they can, yeah. uh, you know, it can be, but by, by all accounts, you know, he, he, he lived up to the, to the, to the myths surrounding him, you know, in, in, in such a beautiful way. Yeah. Um, and even maybe surpass them <laughs> just because it's the, the enigmatic spirit of Tony Rice was, was, was large <laughs> and, uh, it was beautiful, you know, and so it's just very various angles to kind of uh, kind of process process that. But you know, he was always a real a real pal to me and and a support. And I don't think anybody ever really got really close to him. But for what we had, it was it was really good. What's your earliest memory of kind of knowing that Tony Rice existed? Noting that Tony Rice existed. Wow. I, in growing up in Western North Carolina, it was heavy Doc Watson in my house. And then I grew up around this kind of music. 
playing guitar with my dad and then, you know, in a huge community of, of players and flat picking was a normal thing. We all did it. And, and that, you know, the first few years for me were, were just being immersed in that, in that world that was already, you know, well-established. And then I remember this guy named Ted White, who, um, who was another sort of fixture and continues to be a fixture in the Western North Carolina Asheville music scene. He said, have you heard this guy, Tony Rice? And we were in a local music store where that sold albums. And uh, I said, no. And um, he said, we ought to check him out. And I guess this was probably uh, mid eighties at this point. And uh, so that, that led to sort of the first, uh, the first cassette buying and then, and then learning, learning about Tony Rice. Springsteen that, refers to um, like a Rolling Stone, the snare drum at the beginning of like a Rolling Stone mm-hmm. as the crack of the sound of your mind opening. <laughs> right. It feels like with guitar pickers, especially hearing Tony Rice for the first time, there is that same sort of crack, that sort of like um, increasing of the limitations around the instrument or yeah. de- decreasing of the limitations around the instrument. Yeah, say. right. You know, bluegrass guitar is a very physical thing. In a bluegrass band, it is the is the it's the quietest instrument compared to banjos and mandolins and fiddles. And any bluegrass guitar player will talk about the struggles of being heard and the struggles of of feeling like you know you're having enough impact compared to all these other things. But and that's the the magic of Tony is that you never really felt that, you know, even, you know, watching him live and knowing that there's electronics involved in studio mixing and live mixing. Um, but just the way that he managed to, to, uh, to sort of sonically exist in the mix of, in the mix of a bluegrass band, that that's, I mean, to the, to the sound of the crack of the snare, that's to me, that's the Tony Rice imprint is, the, the little bass runs behind the banjo licks and the G runs at the end of phrases and the, the raise of the profile at the end of the vocal phrases. And it's just this intricate mixing where it's not just all loud, but when it's there, it's huge, you know, and, and it drives the music forward so much. Um, and so again, as a player, you look at that and go, how can I do that? How can he do that? <laughs> and, uh, and so the crack of the snares is, is your mind opening, but also this, this, uh, the gauntlet raise or the challenge being <laughs> issued, like, can I do that? You know? And then that's, that's been a lot of my life in bluegrass is trying to figure out that mix and, and, uh, either recreate it or have my own version of it or something like that. When did you first meet? <clears throat> um, here. <laughs> Uh, that was July of 1989. Where were 15 you? Year old, 15 year old me at uh, Doyle Lawson's uh, Bluegrass Festival in Denton, North Carolina. And uh, it was actually the first festival that I'd ever really been to for a sort of pro level festival. And you kind of left the parking lot, walked over this hill, and it kind of revealed this amphitheater down there. And Jim and Jesse were on stage at the time when the day we got there. And, but it was just so many, again, to that mind-opening snare crack that Bruce Springsteen talks about, just the the visual in front of me of those bands, those nationally recognized bands that had existed in magazines and, 
you know, albums and cassette tapes. And then there's Tony Rice unit. And again, just the sound of the guitar in that little amphitheater, sort of a covered shed kind of thing was just so impactful. I mean, every note just cracked. Every note was a snare drum. <clears throat> and, uh, it was huge. It was, it was amazing. And again, through that weekend was opportunities to, you know, that was basically taken backstage. Did you, you, you walked up to him, you introduced yourself? I think so. Yeah. Sounds terrifying. I know it, it was, well, my mom, um, she's a good encourager <laughs> and she, I think that she probably encouraged me to go, uh, to go meet him because I mean, it was, I mean, as soon as you leave the stage, there's this little sort of side trailer where all the, you know, the instrument cases are being stored where folks kind of leave the public and transition into performance. And, and, uh, but right outside of that was, you know, record tables. And, and that's also where I met all the guys in hot rise for the first time and, 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 you know, a few other people, but, but it was, you know, that's the cool thing about bluegrass is how accessible everybody is. And it wasn't weird. And I remember there was somebody else backstage in one of the other bands that, was playing Tony's guitar and I'm like, you can't do that. You can't touch Tony Rice's guitar. <laughs> <laughs> when you, before you did the duets with him, which I definitely want to talk about, did, did you get to play with him before that? Did you get to jam with him or anything? <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, like fast forward, if that's 1989 by 95 and six, now I'm with Ricky Skaggs band. I kind of blowing people away. I, I'm, I'm not to talk on your behalf, but th that felt like a certain crack moment as well. You know, your solos on Get Up John and, and Rawhide on Bluegrass Rules. It was the first um, big guitar player I had heard who wasn't mm -hmm. Tony, who wasn't Doc. It was a big moment for Bluegrass guitar as well. I'll, I'll, just for people listening, well, I'll, I'll point that out, you know. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> I, can, I can do that. I can do that. Okay. <laughs> well, it was through that connection with Ricky where, I, you know, again, found myself... Um, on stage at Merlefest and various places around where Tony was also booked. And there was, you know, Skaggs would generally invite Tony on stage. And there's, there's some photos of my first set at Merlefest with Ricky, where Tony's up there playing too. And then there was a couple of other, or at least one other jam where Ricky was involved, uh, where I was on stage with Tony. And that was probably the first time I had an opportunity to play with him on stage in real time. Um, and that led to just other other things throughout the sort of mid to late nineties of just us crossing a lot of paths. Um, and mainly at festivals. Would you talk about guitar? I know he would talk a lot about music. He would talk a lot about jazz. He would listen to jazz with a lot of people. Did you Those, talk about guitar? Well, here's the other weird thing about that, that era is that we uh, at these festivals it was mainly like okay let's figure out something to do and go out on stage and play it and then let's have a fun time and we'll see you later <clears throat> i you know again growing up in Asheville, there was a studio there and i was always interested in being a session musician and to try to go really quickly here tony got also was connected to folks that were working there. And there were some groups there like the, the Isaacs who were sort of a bluegrass gospel group. Mm -hmm. um, and he produced their record there at the studio. And that was one of the other first chances I had to like, not just be guitars in hand, let's go out and play something where we were standing, having coffee and talking about stuff. Or those were other memories of sitting in his car, listening to Chuck Loeb. And uh, 
he would just point out like, this is really good. You know, just the use of space. You know, he wasn't trying to teach me anything. It was just, he would talk about what he liked about whatever this was. And it couldn't be farther from bluegrass. And, and that was when my mind was first opened a little bit more to, um, the, you know, the whole sort of spectrum of Tony, because I was aware of his playing outside of just traditional bluegrass, but to hear him kind of talk about it a little bit was, was really cool. And then as, some of these other years I'd moved away from Asheville, but was still going back there to that studio to do some work. And he would be there from time to time. And I mean, there would be lunch breaks and, and, you know, just sitting around the studio with his guitar. Um, and I, I mentioned that story the other night about, you know, there was different ones of us that would play that thing on the same mics. And then he sat down and this whole other, the snare would crack again. <laughs> and it was just, just a lot of, so the point is, Tom, like a lot of little series of moments where there wasn't like some big sit down, like Critter had that whole, you know, month with him, but it was a collection of, of, uh, just little things, little, little instances, little, little discussions, little questions and answers and little musical moments, um, that kind of all, you know, in their own little way, kind of built, uh, built to a little more of a relationship. I don't know. I don't know if you'll have the answer to this, but I, I feel like you might have the closest to it. Is, is did Doc and Tony have a relationship? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can't speak for either of them to know really what was there, but I know that you know they did some pretty great recordings over the years, and there's there's some good live stuff on YouTube, and there's some other sort of bootleg festival tapes of them hanging around. And I know that Tony had the utmost respect for Doc, and Doc had huge respect for Tony as well. You know, and then there's Norman Blake in the mix of all, you know, all these just other stuff that's out there. But. And Clarence, you know, I guess I, I've been reflecting so much on Clarence. Um, not just that the guitar he plays is of, of is, is Clarence's, but mm-hmm. you know, I've, been, I've been listening to, to a lot of, I listened to that Mule Skinner. When I was getting ready to talk to Peter Rowan, I listened to the Mule Skinner. Someone gave mm-hmm. me the VHS tape, actually, and I had to find a VCR. Yeah. And I <laughs> dug it out and I watched the Mule Skinner uh uh, but they were opening for Monroe or something like that. And, and or uh, maybe it was Ralph Stanley and, and they didn't show. Yeah, I don't remember. That's, it sounds right. And this is, again, I'll, I'll have more answerable questions in a second. But I, I wonder if you could talk as a guitar player about Tony in the context or lineage of Clarence mm. and Doc. Well, I think, I mean, when I've talked to Norman and Tony, you know, I think everybody sort of looks at Doc as sort of an original source uh, as far as the guitar in an acoustic string band playing leads, you know, and uh, playing leads at a level where there was intricacy and, you know, single note flurries and then some improvisational, uh, you know, energies here and there. And so, you know, Doc, I think Doc is the source, ultimately. And there was people, you know, and he would point to Hank Garland and, and some other folks before him, even, that sort of uh, were, were, were Doc's influences. But, but anyway, as far as this, our, our scene here, Doc, Doc does seem to be the, the source. And then as far as, you know, uh, Clarence, I've seen interviews with him talking about Doc Watson, just as, you know, that's where people first got wind of what you could do with an acoustic guitar and a string band as far as playing fiddle tunes and um you know solos on jimmy rogers songs and things like that but uh 
<clears throat> and as far as other things going on too, was Norman Blake, you know, with John Hartford and, 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 and then there was some other people like Don Reno in the world of bluegrass and George Shuffler, certainly George Shuffler and Larry Sparks, you know, so that, you know, the guitar was around. That was another thing, a uh, part of our discussion with Dan Creer the other day that didn't make that, final little edit but he was talking about how you know even back then still guitar lead was kind of a novelty you know if you went to a bluegrass festival you, you remember seeing larry sparks with ralph stanley uh, over a festival where larry didn't take a break just because it was i don't know it was just the songs they chose but it just wasn't like we've got to have a guitar solo at, at all these moments so that you know as far as the energy and the kind of the the normalcy of of just guitars taking breaks it was it was still kind of a new thing, even when, when Norman and Clarence were, were kind of using Doc's initial energy to kind of play more bluegrass in front of people um, and, and take more solos. And then Clarence died in 73. <clears throat> and it does seem like, you know, Tony sort of emerged out of that shadow of Clarence uh, in those early to mid-70s. You know, 73 to 75, um, it seems like a, an interesting span of years from when Clarence died. And then, then there's that 0044 J.D. Crow record in 75. And then, you know, Tony had gotten hooked up with J.D. even before that with the Kentucky Mountain Boys with, with uh, his brother, Larry. So it's just an interesting, just all the fusion going on there and all the, <clears throat> all the people kind of filtering around. That whole Lexington, Kentucky scene is amazing just the seventies in Lexington, just huge for bluegrass. Can you tell me a little bit about duetting with Tony on your record? <clears throat> the whole, the whole process was kind of frenetic, a little bit like that thing we did Sunday where it's just a lot of calls and we'll see what happens. Um, a hard guy to reach too, from what I understand, but a lot of people have told yeah. me, you know, yeah. He would be pretty good about, you know, you, he would never pick up the phone immediately, but he would generally call you back if he could. And sometimes it wouldn't be to like 11 at night or something like that. But, um, but he was totally friendly and amenable about it. And we met at that studio in Asheville that I was talking about. And um, my goal for that, you know, again, was just a opportunity to record duet style with all these, you know, hero guitar players. And certainly he was top of the top of the list there and uh, kind of knew exactly what I wanted to do, not necessarily exactly what song, but sort of what's Tony's role in this, in this list with Doc Watson and Earl Scruggs and, and David Greer and all these people, George Suffler, <clears throat> and knew what kind of song I'd like to play with him, but didn't know what, how it would go down. And so he was just, again, just really, really great. We just played. And in fact, there are, there's two songs on the record. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, some other stuff that I found a few years ago that I forgot that we cut just sitting around noodling. Uh, part of what's on that um, thing from Sunday is <clears throat> a version of Wayfaring Stranger that, you know, there's like seven minutes of it <laughs> that I have um, of just he and I sitting around playing. So, you know, he, he got there and he wanted to play and it wasn't like, okay, you got 20 minutes and I'm going to go back to Reedsville. <clears throat> he was there, he was present and uh, was willing to do whatever. Did you notice something new being that close to his playing that you hadn't noticed before? You know, I, I had a little bit of a goal as a self-producer to feel like, you know, I know that I'm influenced by him and I didn't want to just sit there and copy 
what he did. But what I was hoping to kind of do was encourage him to stretch. And so I feel like there were moments where I felt that happening and I felt good about it. I'm like, okay, cool. It's happening. You know, cause there was, cause I, I, I know the, the rice vocabulary and the system that's there and it's beautiful and it's great, but I also know that, you know, that he can kind of manipulate that on his own. And I was trying to figure out ways to allow him to feel comfortable enough to do that, not verbally, but just, is there anything I can do musically or just vibe wise in the tune to, to just get into this communication with him where it, where it feels comfortable, you know, communication is that way. It's, it's, you know, you're, there's always kind of a gap uh, between you and whoever you're talking to, or when it's, when it's right, it's real open and, and flows freely. And that's, that's what I was hoping for because I knew again, it would lead to, to him in some more natural sort of stretch moments. So what, did you like do? We got what did you do? Like, did you, I don't know, Tom, specifically, it may have been, um, again, I'm just dying know. to know, you know, I'm dying you know, to know if you, yeah. I think, it, you know, on, on the more like the jazz level, the, the more improvisational musical conversation level, it was about reacting to him in a way that wasn't parroting what he had just done, but like encouraging this kind of like elevation, like, okay, you're going to do this and I'll, I can do this against that. It's not that, but it's responsive to that. And if you're listening to that too, you might go here. And there was, there was some of that. Um, and again, it's just like a conversation uh, that I tried not to just be too, Oh, you said that Tony Rice said that that's cool. I'm just going to, you know, record that and go on. I mean, I really was not pushing him, but also, you know, trying to go for, go for some stuff. And it, uh, part of the challenge for me was to allow that to happen too. And I know it, it kind of gets deep sounding quickly, but, but it really is about a, uh, an improvisational musical conversation. And I guess the hard part about it, it's like, it's where a guy like me and Critter are going to go naturally, no matter what. And, any of the instances I had playing with Tony, I had to get over the fact that that's Tony Rice. And so that was part of what I did too, was just get over it, <laughs> get over it and show up and play and it'll be there. And it'll be great. I'll, I'll ask you the, a few questions that I've asked everybody so far. And um, for, first up is when was the last time you talked to him? <clears throat> it was backstage at one of the IBMA events in Raleigh. I don't remember what year. I don't think it was the year that he was in the Hall of Fame, uh, inducted in the Hall of Fame. It may have been after that even. I don't remember, actually. But I remember it was it was sweet, and it was kind of sad. He was talking about how he was struggling with his playing, and it was – he said, I can play downstrokes, but I can't – I really struggle playing upstrokes. I mean, it kind of got into guitar, guitar discussion. And – uh It was, it was, I remember it being kind of, kind of sad. Not that, not that I was thinking this is the last time I'm going to see Tony Rice, but it was just, um, I mean, again, I, I feel weird saying this because it may or may not be true, but I feel like just us sitting there talking about that, I, he was getting a little emotional about it. Um, and again, I don't know if I was just imagining that or if that was real, but but he also had like just some really heartfelt things to say to me. And, and it, you know, it felt like a good, honest conversation with, with a pal about life. And, and uh, that was it. 
what was he what was he like that's a good question <clears throat> you know the the when I just think about him as a person, I think about the guy that you would see and he would do the, Hey, and, and, you know, put his hands up and he'd come over and hug you and, and, uh, has it shaken. And, uh, I mean, it was just jovial, right? He has, you know, you see those pictures of him kind of just real stern on stage, but, um, you know, he was, I don't know if he was a life of the party kind of guy, at least when I was around him, but, but he was always, always had a smile, always had, you know, a laugh and, and all this kind of stuff. Just, just a real good energy. I never was around him either long enough or long enough professionally to sort of see him in any kind of, you know, I'm, I'm struggling here or I wish this was this way or, and that kind of thing. And I know like with, you know, acoustic music, you know, stage monitors can be, can be trouble. And, you know, I've just seen him on stage, like really good sort of, you know, I rate with, with, with sound crews and things like that. And, you know, I, I know he has the capacity to, or had the capacity for that, but I never, I never saw any of that personally. I don't know that anybody really knew Tony. I mean, even thinking about conversations I've had with some of his peers over the years and just, you know, always feeling a little bit of that gap or that tendency of his to be totally there and engaged. But yet when we're done, yeah, the Mustang is, is hot. Um, and wonder about, you know, whether it was the swarm of fans or whatever it was, just that, that, that solitude that he really sought after. And I mean, again, like to Critter's point of just how he would sit for hours or even days just down in his basement with his, with his high, hi-fi rig, just, just soaking up in records. Uh, you know, he, I guess that's where he found balance. I don't know. Uh, is in, in those moments where it was, I remember him telling me one time he liked, he liked it driving in, in the middle of the night through States like Kansas, just because the speed limit was like 75 or something, you know, he liked, he liked to, he liked to go, he liked to go fast, you know, maybe it gave him a sense of control that he didn't have, you know, when it was chaos, you know, on the festival grounds. I will say this though. One of the cooler things, it wasn't the Mustang. It was the town car where we were at Merle Fest, I was back there. Uh, did I say this with my dad? <clears throat> and uh, and they were introducing him. And that's about the time he drove up. The band was on stage and, and he was he was just, uh, <laughs> he was still in the car. And he lit this cigarette and the, and the window went down about three inches. And you could just see, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the Tony Rice unit. <laughs> and <laughs> there he is. You know, so there, there was... Uh, he was basking in that. <laughs> what made Tony Rice's music so special? <clears throat> I'm saving the hard ones to late, Brent. Yeah, no. What made his music so special? Um, his playing, his, his, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's for me as as a as a student of that kind of music and that kind of playing. What I go to on a regular basis is kind of what I said, some of what I said earlier, just this inherent knowledge of how to how to fit yourself in the in the puzzle that is a bluegrass band sonically, dynamically. The the sound of the notes, the the 
the fidelity and the impact, the length of the notes to get really inside of it, to me, are sort of gold standard level things that, and this is one of the interesting things about like the way music and generations work is I don't know that I just feel that way because it's just what I've had imprinted into my brain and maybe somebody will come along in the future and beat it. But it feels like when he, again, was in that era of doing what he did at the top of his game, um, it was done. You know, it's hard to imagine that a D28 played with a flat pick could be better. I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard it. I don't know. And so on that level of just a human and a tool, that is something that will continually challenge and inspire me. The, and then, then just to unpack that into layers of choices and why did that happen? You know, what was, you know, why did he choose that? Why, you know, try to answer all the whys and take it beyond just, just transcribing solos, which I, again, never really did try to understand more of like the essence of why that note or why that phrase works there. Um, and then again, on the, just on the strumming and the rhythm front, I love the way Dan Tominsky puts it where like all his favorite banjo solos are his favorite banjo solos because Tony Rice is playing rhythm. <laughs> he realized, right. And, and that's, for me, that's kind of a final piece of the puzzle that I don't know that I'll ever, ever feel like I truly unpack. And again, I, I actively try not to copy Tony, but there's just such a kind of like with the tone thing, there's just such an undeniable doneness about it. Like this can't be any better. You cannot, you can't experience that with more intricacy and subtleties and nuance, but also a raw kind of power and placement and dynamic. When you, in your mind, picture Tony Rice. What do you see? Can you, can you tell me, can you describe to me what you see in your mind's eye? Mm -hmm. I, uh, I sort of see the, the, the suit. And I mean, if, if you really want to unpack it, it's a smell, you know, there's a lot of, uh, aftershave or cologne or something that anytime you're around him, the case you know, kind of wafts and it's, there's a, there's a smell. And on the sonic front to me too, in the mind's ear, and this is something that I try to, this is something I've done with guitar heroes over the years. It's sort of like encapsulated down to kind of one thing that I could maybe think to apply in my playing, like with doc Watson, it's just clarity. <clears throat> and, um, and Tony Rice, it's, it's like this smoke, like a smokiness. Um, like a wood smoke. I don't know why, but I like when you, there's a, t a term we use thinking about tone. Uh, it's a dry guitar tone and it just, you almost hear the dust on the notes and, and like the, there's a smokiness to it. So that's all in my brain <laughs> quickly with Tony Rice. You know, I think that um, I, I, I'm gratefully for your time and you've been very generous and, I've been, you know, I, I made a little, I made a little playlist after I, you know, he passed of just some of my favorite Tony Rice moments, you know, and I, it ended up being three hours. Yeah. Before, and I'm not even done, you know, like, 
And I've been reflecting so much on his playing and Chris and I were talking, Keely and I were talking about, you know, what happens when, you know, monumental musicians die and how their music carries on through those who play it. And I just wanted to say like, you know, he, he leaves a legacy through people like you. Um, And, um, and I, I, I hear him and he'll, he won't go as long as we hear him through people like you. So thanks so much for your time. And I appreciate you talking about him. Thank you. Thank you so much to Brian Sutton. I can't recommend enough. If you enjoyed this three-part series, this tribute to Tony Rice, check out Brian's three-hour-long tribute to Tony Rice. It is absolutely incredible. Go find it. It's on Facebook. Just look up Brian Sutton on Facebook and you'll be able to find it there. Thank you so much for listening. Toy Heart is produced by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer is Amy Reitenauer Jacobs with help, as always, from the entire BGS team, like producer Chris Jacobs, associate editor Justin Hiltner, managing editor Craig Shelburne, and all of the amazing writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for Roots Culture Redefined. Discover more at thebluegrasssituation.com. The show was mixed by Stephanie Coleman and Mike Laval. Transcription by Rob McLaren. Our theme song, Toy Heart by Bill Monroe, was performed by Chris Eldridge and Kristen Andreessen. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with folks like Del McCurry, Alice Gerard, and Jesse McReynolds in the podcast feed, as I mentioned off the top, and click subscribe and tell any of your friends that are into bluegrass music. This is the last, I guess you'll hear from us for a little while we weren't really expecting to do any more podcasts until the border opened back up because i really i feel tempted to sit down and do some of these interviews over zoom and maybe someday i'll be convinced but like there's nothing like sitting down in front of these folks and getting to talk to them so i really want to do it the right way i hope you understand uh and i hope you can be patient with us but in the meantime thank you so much for listening my deepest gratitude to every single person who came on the show to talk about Tony Rice. Sometimes these were folks who found it hard to talk about Tony Rice. Sometimes it was the first time they had talked about Tony Rice since his passing, and uh, it means the absolute world to me. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you to Tony Rice for the joy you gave me and the joy you gave so many of us with your music. So take care. See you soon. Later on. <laughs>